This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Backlash against racial justice movements. I had a situation where a white woman reacted very negatively to a critique of of white women and the privilege that white women have and the, the whiteness that is often centered in white women's circles. Ariva Martin, a black attorney and media expert, she's noticed it happening in her own personal circles. And I, I sense the her reaction was a sense of we're sick of being dumped on. We're sick of people telling us what we've done wrong. Coming up in this episode of Colors. I came to the U.S. when I was two months old with my parents, and we came to the U.S. as boat people from Vietnam in 1979. How does that term boat people make you feel? I It makes me feel proud. Dr. Julie Pham is CEO of Curiosity Based, a consulting practice dedicated to helping people realize the power of their own curiosity and author of the book, Seven Forms of Respect. My father was a naval officer um, with the Republic of Vietnam military. And so after the war ended in 1975, he was sent to re-education camp. One of the reasons why we fled Vietnam is because he had a real fear of being sent back to re-education camp. Hers is a compelling story about hard work, ingenuity, and setting the record straight. When I get into conversations with people about the Vietnam War, and sometimes it starts with, oh, I'm so sorry for what we did to your country. Hmm. And so I just let them know, Actually, um, we were fighting alongside one another for um, freedom. The Americans were supporting um, the South Vietnamese. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Michael Edwards. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am white, and I grew up in a small southern town about an hour's drive east of Raleigh. My name is Karen Hansen. I'm white. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, and I live in Washington, D.C. My name is Lars Sindis. I'm an Indian Jamaican living in the United States for the last 25 years. My name is Tara White. I am an African-American woman, and I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. And I'm J.J. Green. And I'm black. And this is Colors. Welcome to episode 70 of Colors. Our guest today is Dr. Julie Fahm. She's the founder of Curiosity Based, a consulting practice helping organizations foster more curiosity to build trust, communication, and collaboration. As a writer and a speaker, Dr. Fahm is known for her willingness to get vulnerable, something she'll do today. She's written a book called Seven Forms of Respect. She joined us on Colors to talk about all of that, but we begin our discussion with her background. 
Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, JJ. You've been hard at work for years on issues of immigration, and it, and it, and it goes right back to your own personal story. Tell me about your story coming to the United States. So I came to the U.S. when I was two months old. I was a two-month-old baby with my parents, and we came to Vietnam, or we came to the U.S. as boat people from Vietnam in 1979. How does that term "boat people" make you feel? I it makes me feel proud. Uh, it makes me feel that my parents and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese took a lot of risk. Uh, to leave Vietnam. And I think of the this poem by Worcester Shear. She's a Somali British poet. And she wrote, you have to understand no parent puts their child um, on water unless it's safer than the land. <laughs> so I'm I'm proud of that term yeah. boat people. Yeah. And a part of the reason why I ask you that is because of the society we live in now where we take extra special care not to offend anyone. And some people have been offended by terms like that. That's the reason why I ask you that question. And I think that they're offended by the negative connotations, not necessarily by the, and so if, if they were to think about, well, what does that mean? What did, what does it take to be a boat person versus, um, Oh, you are a, a new immigrant, new refugee, and you don't know anything. I think those are the, the connotations, negative connotations with boat people. Yeah. Well, we're not focusing on negative. We're all positive here. Can you talk to us for a bit about how Vietnamese refugees and the Vietnam War generally, to your to your thinking, are understood in American mainstream American narratives? Yeah. So I think that the the Vietnam War is painted as being between the Vietnamese and the Americans. And the Vietnamese are de facto the North Vietnamese, the communists. And so actually there are the South Vietnamese, the Republic of Vietnam, and they were, the Americans were allies to the Republic of Vietnam. And it's their narrative. It's the narrative of the South Vietnamese that are, that's often written out and um, omitted from how mainstream American uh, understa understands the Vietnam War. Talk, can you talk a little bit more about what your preferred um, perception be? Uh, maybe yes. a, Sure, yes. go ahead. So, and I just want to, I just want to emphasize that this is just another perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a, as a trained historian, I don't think that there's any absolute right or wrong. It's just being able to share different perspectives and different voices. And so, so uh, the South Vietnamese have, um, the, for the South Vietnamese, they were fighting for freedom. So my father was in the, um, my father was a naval officer um, with the Republic of Vietnam military. And so after, after the war ended in 1975, he was, uh, he was sent to re-education camp. And, um, and so re-education camp is where many uh, people who were with associated with the Republic of Vietnam military and uh, with the government um, where they were sent to be re-educated in communism. And so one of the reasons why we fled Vietnam is because he 
have had a real fear of being sent back to re-education camp and that the after the war ended, uh, life was actually very oppressive, um, especially for those who who were South Vietnamese. And so um, and so I think a lot of people don't understand um, that the the Vietnamese refugees who are in the U.S. today are mainly from and the, the Vietnamese community that that's in the U.S. today mainly are, are, are descendants or refugees from um, South Vietnam. And so that we were fighting for our own freedom against North Vietnam and we were fighting against communism. And I think that the way that Americans portray the war is that there's a lot of guilt associated with that. And, and there's a lot of, oh, we shouldn't have been there. We shouldn't have been in Vietnam. And yet, um, and yet what that means is that the South Vietnamese who are here don't feel that do, do, do Americans understand, well, actually, we were fighting for freedom when we saw the Americans supporting our fight for freedom. Um, we don't feel that we're here because we are um, that it's because we're being pitied. It's it's because um, the Americans were our, our allies and we had a legitimate uh, cause to to fight. So how do you go about adjusting that? perspective or do you try to uh, address that guilt that you might run across? I when so when I get into conversations with people about the Vietnam War and sometimes it starts with, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I hear um, someone say, I'm so sorry for what we did to your country. Hmm. And so I just let them know, well, actually, um, we were fighting alongside one another for um, freedom. The Americans were supporting um, the South Vietnamese. And so we 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 actually appreciate the Americans doing that. And also our fight was our fight was legitimate. Um, so one of the ways that I've been doing that when I was an undergrad, I uh, did a large oral history project and I interviewed 40 South Vietnamese veterans about their perspective of the Vietnam War. And so one way is through scholarship um, and sharing those voices. Now I speak on the Humanities Washington Speakers Bureau, also uh, telling this side. Um, and I just point, point it out to people because I don't expect people to know, especially when the American narrative is so uh, of, of guilt is so so dominant, it's so prevalent in films, um, even in Ken Burns' um, big documentary about the Vietnam War, he doesn't interview any South Vietnamese military who are who are outside of Vietnam. And so I just I just share people I share with people, hey, um, there's another perspective here. So who won that war? Who won that war? JJ, I think it depends. Well, I mean. Technically, the the North Vietnamese won the war. The communists won the war. Um, yes, I mean that is mm. they won the war, and there is a uh, the the fall of Saigon is called Liberation Day in Vietnam now, and South Vietnamese, the Vietnamese community in the U.S., refer to that as the day we lost our country. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about Vietnam today? Do you go there? Yes, I've actually lived on and off in Vietnam since uh, 2002, and I'm just so impressed by the growth. Uh, I went there as first as a grad student, and it's just been so the, the country is young and it's resilient and the economy is booming. Uh, when I first lived there, you could buy a bowl of uh, 
for 30 cents and now costs two dollars because of uh, because of inflation. Um, and it's just really been impressive to see how much progress there's been. And part of that, JJ, is because of um, because of remittances of of all of the money that um overseas Vietnamese, Vietnamese who left Vietnam have been sending home to their families in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Well, you and your, you and your family have been here in the United States for a good while and have made a significant impact. And, you know, you've become entrepreneurs. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could tell us about your, your parents uh, and what they started, because it's my understanding they started a Vietnamese newspaper in Seattle. Yes. Yes. So while my parents came to the U.S., they had to go to school again. They had met as law students in Saigon. And um, and when they came here, they uh, my dad started studying um, engineering and um, and then they realized that the, the Vietnamese community in Seattle was growing and that uh, there was a there were all of these Vietnamese businesses springing up and they uh, they decided to start a, a Vietnamese newspaper um, to serve all of the, the Vietnamese businesses and the community to connect uh, one another. So before that, there had been a, a state-supported newspaper uh, supported by Washington, uh, Washington State. And so they started the first privately owned Vietnamese newspaper in the Pacific Northwest. And it was a branch of, it, it is a branch of um, this large, the largest overseas uh, Vietnamese newspaper, which is based down in uh, in Orange County. And so uh, when that newspaper, which is called Nguyen Viet, which means Vietnamese people, um, started uh, in the late 70s, then in the mid 80s, they were just, well, our Vietnamese community is growing throughout the country. Let's um, let's start to um, to invest and see if there's opportunities to to create branches. And so my parents um, uh, started which means uh, the Vietnamese people of the Northwest, of the Pacific Northwest. You followed essentially in your parents' footsteps becoming an entrepreneur. What did you learn from them that was most important or instrumental in helping you to follow them and to do what you're doing successfully? <sighs> to be... Creative is one is to find solutions to turn to turn obstacles into opportunities. Um, my parents were constantly making lemonade, and I think that was actually also our community as well. Um, when given when given hardships, it's like, well, what can we what can we do with that? Um, and to also uh, to also build relationships. I think that they were constantly giving. And, and what that meant was people would constantly want to give back. And there's that, there's that give and take in a relationship where we're constantly helping one another. And um, we would see that, I'd see that with the way that they would work with their advertisers and, um, and extending credit and helping them grow their business. And those advertisers in turn also helped grow the newspaper. And so really the, the growth of the newspaper was a reflection of the growth of the of the community and mm. so i learned from that i learned from hey this is um this is a problem and how do i actually make it into an opportunity and jj i actually worked at the newspaper mm -hmm. 
for a while too. Um, after finishing up my PhD in history, I came back to Seattle at the end of 2008 and I decided to um, that I wanted to get my real life MBA and work at the newspaper and um, and learn how to run a business by 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 doing by running a small business. And um, if you remember, that was that was the the recession, right? And also the decline of the print newspaper, the start of the decline of the print newspaper industry, and it was really hard. And um, and then during that time, um, we. we came together with all of these other different ethnic media organizations who are also serving their communities and doing it out of largely out of passion and um, a sense of service and um, realizing that even though we are all these different ethnicities, we, um, we had this shared purpose and we could be stronger together. And so I learned a lot from, um, my parents in that, and also just from running the newspaper. And I ran the newspaper um, for three years and my brother and I actually ended up buying a part of the newspaper. We bought one edition from um, from them. So that was actually technically the first company that I owned. All right. So you mentioned community in your response, talking about what you learned from your parents and uh, your the process of uh, learning the business, the entre- entrepreneurship world. Uh, getting educated, et cetera. But you talked about community, importance of community. And there's something I'd like to ask you about that um, I think is very significant in in, in the in the Asian Pacific Islander community, um, certainly within the last year, and that's the attacks that have taken place across the country. How did those, mm-hmm. how, how did that strike you? How, do, how did you deal? Do you deal with that? Well, uh, it's um, with a... <sighs> By talking to one another, I think just um, so you're you're referring to the Atlanta attacks and just all of the anti-Asian hate crimes. Just, just in all general. of them in general. Atlanta is just one of them. New York's another one that's gotten a yes. lot of attention. But there have been many way before yeah. that dating back decades. But they just became much more prevalent because I don't know why, but I think because of uh, the focus on race in this country. It's. It's actually a time for us to, because of the attacks, it makes us come together and talk about these, talk about this more. Um, it's it's sharing our stories and going back and, and thinking back, well, what has happened to us in the past? And I feel it's actually a, it's a way to create more solidarity as well. Um, I wrote an essay about the, about how a lot of, Uh, in my conversations with other Asian friends, they'd say, well, you know, we just don't have it. I mean, what's, it's bad, but you know, it's not as bad as what's happening um, in the black community. And that made me really think about, well, this is our moment to, to take the mic. And if we don't take it, does that mean that we are just reinforcing this idea that we are kind of passive and, and silent um, um, culture. And, and this is actually also an opportunity for, other other people to stand in solidarity with us too. What do you recommend for us who are outside looking in at this do and think when this comes across our paths, whether it's in person, whether it's reading or watching or hearing about it? Uh, give me some insight into how we should process and, and engage on this. So what's happening with the attacks, that is the most violent 
representation. And I hope that this will also bring attention to just how um, how many assumptions um, and anti-Asian assumptions there are just in general. And um, so, for example, even in the workplace, oftentimes there's Asians just get discriminated against because they are seen as the silent workhorses, for example. Um, we don't need to promote Asians because they're there to do the um, the 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 work and they're not necessarily we don't necessarily need to put them in leadership roles. Um, I've also heard from people that Asians aren't considered people of color um, and that um, what I'd like people to understand is Asians face racism. We just face racism differently than in other communities. Um, and and yet, yeah, so I hope that it actually highlights the just the the Asian experience in general. Well, it certainly is something as an African-American male that um, dominates my thought process because of uh, my own and my own family's experiences um, with that kind of activity over many, many, many years, centuries. Um, mm -hmm. You're writing a book or written a book, Seven Forms of Respect. Tell us about that. Yes. So... So earlier this year, I started a business and um, it's called Curiosity Based. And um, and it's on it's I started this business so that we could talk about fostering curiosity in the world. And um, and so part of that is how do we understand that there are different perspectives and different ways of seeing things? And so when people talk about respect, they think about it in terms of respect is universal and it's absolute. And people, I hear people say, oh, I need you to respect me and you're being disrespectful. And what we're not really understanding is that there are actually different ways of seeing respect. And, um, and so with the seven forms of respect, it actually, it, um, based on my research, it's, we actually see there are different ways of seeing respect. And so when you, someone says, I need to be respected, I think we can follow it up by saying, hey, well, how do you want to be respected? Um, because they're, what one person sees as respectful, another person could see as disrespectful. Talking to you before we started this, this, this podcast, we talked about a lot of different things. And, you know, this podcast in part was started because of my own interest in talking to people about race, hearing other people's ideas and thoughts regarding race and their perceptions of race. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a natural curiosity. Uh, and there are moments when it's kind of hard to ask mm -hmm. the questions that need to be asked or that I want to ask because there is this concern about people getting offended. But you've got, a, a, I think, a very good approach to curiosity. I wonder if you would explain that to us. Yes, I think that people now are so afraid of offending others. And so they don't ask questions. And I think what that creates is just a lot of self-censorship, a lot of silence. And we've also been hearing lots of talks about belonging and about inclusion. And I think that to have true inclusion, to have a true sense of community, people have to feel safe to ask questions. And if the other person doesn't want to answer the question, they can just say, OK, I don't want to answer that. And they can also ask a question in return, too. Mm -hmm. So a question that offends a lot of my um, fellow Asian Americans is this question of where are you from? Mm 
Um, because the assumption is, oh, you think I'm a foreigner if you're asking me, where am I from? And that question actually doesn't doesn't bother me. It doesn't offend me at all. I just take it uh, as curiosity. And it also gives me permission to say, well, where are you from? Tell me about yourself. And, and that starts the conversation. And I think that's what curiosity is. It's uh, and, and why I think it's so important to foster curiosity because we it's it's about having these conversations to understand one another and that there's so many different perspectives mm-hmm. and, and it's not about the answer itself. It's about where, how did you come to that answer? Um, <laughs> yeah. What informed your worldview? Yeah, that that's, that's brilliant. I like that. I like that approach and I'm glad you shared it with our audience because, you know, the United States is a nation of immigrants, as, as you know, and we all know this. Um, people come here all the time from other places, and there everybody has different reasons, or a lot of people have different reasons, I should say. Um, and there's this other thing that that we discussed is the the push and pull uh, of of leaving a country, going to a place. I'm wondering if you would just sort of lay that out to us as we continue this this discussion about you know where people are from and how to be approached about it. There are so many um, when we when histories of American immigration, there's such a focus on people come here to pursue the American dream um, to have uh, economic mobility. I think one of your previous guests called it this this perception that America is this land of gold. And that's really emphasizing this pool of the, the, the pull factors of what pulls people to come here. And I think what we don't look at enough is what pushes people to leave, what pushes people to leave their homeland. My parents didn't want to leave Vietnam. They felt compelled to leave Vietnam. They were actually the first in our families to, to, to leave. Um, and, and they never went back. They never went back to Vietnam because they felt that, wow, we lost our homeland and we can't, uh, even though many other Vietnamese uh, who who came here as boat people have gone back to Vietnam, for them, the sense of loss was just too great. And so uh, I think that when we think about different when we're, we're getting curious um, about people's different experiences, not just to, to look at, oh, well, what like what what um, what brought you here? Also ask what what compelled you to leave? Uh, and that way we can actually also decenter. Uh, America in that history as well, and look at what was and ask people, well, what was happening in your home country that that compelled you to leave? Mm-hmm. And um, has your has do you have do do you have a, a response to that question yourself when you think back about your own situation? You know, I um, I went to I went to undergrad at Berkeley, very liberal place, and I remember studying communism and Marxism and feeling like, wow, this is really great, and um, and not really understanding communism until I lived in Vietnam, and until I and that was um, the first time was in two thousand two, and I could see then, oh well, yes, there are really many good elements to this, and there are also um, being in a, a one-party state, um, why there's this lack of freedom uh, and democracy that would compel my parents to leave. And so I didn't really understand that until I lived there. Mm-hmm. So, and I say that as someone who's returned numerous times and I've studied um, uh, and I've 
and I've studied uh, Vietnamese communists in uh, in a positive light as well, in a nuanced light. And so um, I don't consider myself this staunch anti-communist. I just I just had a much better understanding of the push factors for myself once yeah. I lived there. Yeah. One thing that I want to talk to you about is something that uh, I think is very, very important is praise. Um, mm. One of the things that I've noticed in my career is praise. Some people don't don't believe in utilizing praise uh, as 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 liberal as others. Some mm-hmm. some people don't believe in it at all. Some people actually use it as a tool uh, and not as uh, a, 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 not as a real expression of how they feel. They use it as a tool to achieve something else, to get someone to do something, to manipulate someone. What's your view on that? So JJ, I am, I'm working on this book right now called seven forms of respect And what you describe as praise is what I call recognition. It's one of the forms of respect. And that idea is to give, um, to give praise, to give compliments, to, um, to have lots of expressions of gratitude. And what I found is that that is relative. Um, like you said, some people like to, to give it more than others. And, um, and so it's, it's to understand why that is. So one person may feel like, oh, you're not, um, I'm not getting seen and heard by you because how I actually want to receive respect is through recognition. And another person might think that, well, those are just, those are just platitudes. They're, they're empty words. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to respect you in different ways. And I saw this in Vietnam as well. So uh, in the U.S., praises I, I see praises more liberally, just um, mm-hmm. liberally, liberally given in in the U.S. Things are everything so amazing. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you know I've what? Seen... Sorry to interrupt. That is just yeah. that's a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I mean, people should knock it off because that is just. You know, it's almost like sometimes like cursing. You know, people mm-hmm. say people curse sometimes because they don't, the, their vocabulary escapes them. They don't have any other words to express what they want to say. And that's mm-hmm. a problem with, with, with that kind of praise, too. Everything is not amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, should, we should knock that off. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, well, I think, though, it's gotten to the point, though, where if people don't have, uh, don't get a happy smiley emoji or amazing then it's like oh well am i yeah am i just average right there's kind of an inflation (laughs) and um and i remember when i first lived in vietnam i would say thank you a lot and then people would tell me don't say thank you thank you sounds so formal i am not doing this and it felt transactional because it's like i'm not doing this for your thanks i'm just we're doing it because we're um uh, because we're close, you know, it actually like not saying thank you was a sign of closeness mm-hmm. and, and gratitude was assumed. Mm-hmm. It didn't need to be said. And even growing up, um, my parents seldom gave me praise. In fact, there was just much, there was just an expectation of, of excellence. And also you have to figure it out yourself of how to get there too. And, um, and so for me, I do like to get, now I understand, I do actually like to get recognition partly because I didn't get it that much growing up. Um, and so, 
as a form of respect, some people think, hey, this is really important. And it can also be cultural, too. I mean, I've heard from people in the American South, you have to the, the, uh, you have to say thank you. You have to um, um, give recognition in these ways. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my point here is that it's it's relative. Yeah. And also, I mean, JJ, to your point, it can also get overdone, too. Yeah. And it can lose its meaning. Yeah. One final question, Julie. Um, the book. Um, you're an entrepreneur, and mm-hmm. this book is one of those elements. Um, so why did you become an entrepreneur? You know, JJ, I just, it's kind of crazy to leave a great executive job at a really high impact nonprofit in the middle of the pandemic. And the nonprofit that I was at, we really stressed uh, increasing diversity in the workforce and especially in tech. And what I saw was that as long as we um, we could talk about increasing diversity and what we were really talking about was increasing um, the faces of people. And yet management and leadership books are primarily written by white men. And so I realized that as long as we were just focusing on changing who's in the seats. We were just changing the actors and we weren't changing the scripts. And so part of the reason why I wanted to start this, my own business was to, um, was to promote and also contribute to different narratives on leadership to have more, um, to have more narratives on leadership written by, by women and uh, people of color and just other underrepresented voices, because actually over 90% of leadership books are written that are uh, that are considered top ranked leadership books are written by white men. So that's one of the reasons why I started uh, the curiosity based. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that book. And I'm so happy we have you on this program talking about that and all of the other things that make you, and I mean this, and you do deserve this. And I don't say this as an insincere, insincere gesture, but uh, I do think what you've done is admirable. And um, there are some elements of what you've done that are amazing as well. So thank you for that. JJ, thank you so much for having me on Colors. I feel very honored. Well, thank you. She is Dr. Julie Fong, and she's the author of Seven Forms of Respect. And by the way, they are procedure, punctuality, information, candor, consideration, acknowledgement, and attention. And we thank you for your attention on this show. You're listening to Colors. I'm John Boyd, a black male from uh, Boyton, Virginia. It appears as though in the black community, the word black farmer has such a bad taste because of slavery, mm-hmm. because of the bad history with uh, blacks and, and the South and sharecropping, all of these things. Uh, yes, those things happen. But we are still black farmers that own their farms. Uh, and uh, Granddaddy Thomas would say, land ownership is the next best thing to freedom. And when you throw the plow in the ground and you smell the ground, he said it's the smell of heaven. Every step you take, every step you make requires land ownership. You can either own some of God's country or you can be trespassing and walk on somebody else's. Mm. Those are the choices that we have, and especially as blacks in this country. If we can afford a new Mercedes-Benz, we can afford five acres in the country. Go out and buy some land. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. 
Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The population of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania is just over 21,000. The population is 90% white. Residents tend to vote conservative, Republican. But in the last year, something changed. An African-American man, a Democrat, is running for mayor and doing well. This is, this, is a, this is a new beginning, and I'm asking people to trust me that it is time, and it requires all of us, not some of us. Businessman Marvin Worthy and his wife Linda are working on building something purple. Blue plus red equals purple. We just want to be sure that everybody has a voice at the table. And I think that we're starting to bring people around in terms of the message that we're sending. We're really trying to build this community together. Regardless of how the election comes out, the story of Marvin and Linda Worthy and Chambersburg is remarkable. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we hope one of those places will be the Podcast DCF. Also, if you have questions or comments or a guest suggestion, or you just want to chat about some stuff, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. I'm JJ Green, and I'm Black, and this is Colors. Time to leave again for now. But as we go, we want to say thank you to some folks. Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Allison McGinley, Jennifer Selig, Pierre Thomas, Stephen Portnoy, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Rob Stallworth, Peter Masurlian, Jasmine Orsted, Melissa Howell, Thomas Warren, Mike Hammer, Alexander Evans, Tom O'Connor, Jean Meserve, Andrea Stallman, Jamal Bowens, and Kevin Stanfield, and... For our music today, we thank Offshane, we thank Jesse Gallagher, and we thank Cosmic. And most of all, we thank you for listening. And just a reminder, keep talking to each other. And just as importantly, keep listening to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.